Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Romans chapter 13 is where we're headed today. The amazing, incredible book of Romans. This is such a powerful book of the Bible, and it is life-changing. And so I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. There was an unknown poet who wrote, about the topic of time, time. I'm just going to give you just a little bit of those people in the back, I think. Don't blow you away too bad. Time, time, time. I think many will identify with this poem. Listen to this. When, I, when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find, while traveling on, time gone. Time. Uh, We only have a certain amount of it here on earth. For a limited time only. Actually, as the month of May approaches, um, things always seem to get a little more serious and sober for me in my emotions and in my heart. It's Mother's Day month, and it's also the month of my mom's birthday. Therefore, my mind always turns to my mom, who is in heaven now. And I, and I know there are many others like me whose moms are, have gone on from here. And it's obvious to me that that's the case because we go to the cemetery every year on Mother's Day, and there are a lot of people visiting their mother's graves on Mother's Day. It's been 14 years since her death uh, from breast cancer, and still it's one of the deepest aches of my life. I still think about her often, still wish I could just, I feel like I'd almost give anything just to talk to her one more time, give her one more hug. She was 52 years old when she died. Very young. Very young. I am now 43. My wife doesn't like me talking about this, but if I was to live as long as my mom did, I have nine years left. Nine years left. I may have more. I may have less. But here's my question to you. How much time do you have left? Nobody knows. Uh, Some of you are saying, Pastor Luke, it is too early in the morning for this kind of talking. (laughs) Uh, This is ridiculous. I'm not trying to be a downer here this morning, but my goal is to motivate us to spend whatever time we have, wisely. That's what we'll see in this passage today. It's kind of what part of it is really all about. And really, here's the, here are the real questions this morning. Since we have a short time, because there's no question about it, we all have a short time. It is a relatively short time that we have on this earth. So since we have a short time, here's my question. Is pettiness and anger worth it? Since we have just a little time left, is sinful and fleshly living worth it? Since we have such a brief time left, is complaining and coveting what other people have worth it? 
Listen, this, and you know this, this life is too important to waste it on uh, focusing on temporal and momentary things that just will not last. So I'm going to give you right now here up front, at the very beginning, I'm just going to give you these two powerful themes that we're going to look at in these amazing passage, this amazing passage of Romans we're about to uh, go into. I'm just going to give you the whole summary of what we're going to talk about in these two powerful principles, and then we're going to launch in. Number one, these are what I'm calling power principles from Paul. <laughs> these are power principles to live by. Number one, pay every debt, material and immaterial, so that you can spend your whole life freely loving others as God commands. That's verses 8 through 10. And then the next power principle that we're going to see here, summarizing it all, is this. Be so aware of the shortness of time on earth that it propels you to deny your flesh and live each day for Jesus. These are power principles to live by. Now remember here, as we're going into Romans 13, this is a very practical section of the book. And this whole section starts with Romans 12. This is the practical section. Paul uh, does this a lot. He writes the doctrinal portion at the beginning of his letter and then really gets to the very practical part toward the end of the letter. Here's what God has done for you. Now here's what you do in light of that. And that's what he started off in Romans 12, 1, saying, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you, here you go, present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. That means we live our life for the Lord. We sacrifice and we give our whole lives to him. Then he gives Paul, he starts to lay out then how a surrendered person is supposed to live. Well, the the. And that's what we call the difference-making habits of an effective Christian. And he goes all the way through Romans 12, giving us those just, just like a, uh, just a machine gun of uh, little amazing habits that every Christian should have in their life. Then in chapter 13, Paul gets really convicting. And we talked about this last week. And it says to obey your governmental authorities, even if it's a hostile government. And... Even worse, pay your taxes, even when they're stupid taxes. <laughs> and I didn't mention this last week and go through in, into detail, but, but you know, Rome had all kinds of taxes. They had a ground tax that was 10% of all your grain and 20% of all your wine and fruit, an income tax, which is 1% of all your income, a poll tax, which everyone 14 to 65 years old had to pay, local taxes, custom duties, import and export taxes, road taxes, bridge taxes, Taxes for entry into the markets and harbors, taxes for the right to own animals, taxes for the driving a cart or a wagon, and actually, apparently, they even had a sun tax, meaning just, just because you're out in the sun, there's a, there's a tax. You, you're, just because you're alive, we're just going to tax you. This is kind of like, <laughs> anyway. And, and new taxes were coming out all the time. So knowing all of that, Paul knew all of that when he wrote, just like Jesus wrote, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay all those taxes. Uh, not only that, but Paul commands us to give our authorities something immaterial as well. Give them the, them the material taxes that you owe, but give them something immaterial as well, and that is your fear and honor. Honor to whom honor is due, fear to whom fear is due. Give it to them. A hard command to obey, but we must obey it. 
So in other words, he was saying, pay your taxes and pay your respects. Pay your respect to everybody you need to pay respect to. Now, in that same line of thinking, the same context now, we have this next verse that we're going to look at, Romans 13 and verse 8. We're, we're also required by God to pay now our fellow man. We pay a government, and we also need to pay each other, pay our fellow man anything that we're obligated to pay. If you owe something to someone, pay them. That's what he's going to say. Look what he says, verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. All right, this is an amazing little verse here. And in the previous verses, again, Paul said, pay the taxes you owe or that you're due. That word owe here in verse 8 is the same Greek word translated as due in verse 7. So pay the government what you owe them. If whatever Caesar is owed, you give it to him. And whatever man is owed, you give it to them. So I'm supposed to pay the government, and I'm supposed to pay you if I owe you. In, in other words, don't live with an outstanding balance toward anyone. The only outstanding balance that you should have toward other people is love, it says here. Love. Now, I believe this is both, as I said, material and immaterial. That's the context, just like it was with the government. We give them not only the taxes, but we also give them respect and fear. And so just like in our relationships with people and in our relationships in business, may nobody in the world be able to say, that guy owes me money. Or, or something immaterial like, she owes me an apology. Or he owes me restitution. May nobody in the world be able to say that. That's what Paul's saying. With a clear conscience, I should have a, let me have a clear conscience with all people. You know, you know that feeling that you get when you owe somebody something? <laughs> it's like, and then you, you see them, and you think of it every single time you see them. You think, man, I need to get them back their money. I need to make sure I pay them back. I have not paid them back. I need to make sure I do that. God wants us to be totally free from that feeling because that's a great weight on us. And also, not only is it a weight on the borrower, but it's a wedge between the borrower and the lender. So it's a great weight and it's a wedge. And rather, God wants us to see that the, the only obligation that I have toward you and that you have toward me is that obligation that I feel inside to love. That's the only obligation that I, that I want on the table. And I think about that, wow, what, what, a, what a life that would be. What if I could be that free with all people, that there's nothing between me and anybody else other than that really strong feeling to just love people? I have nothing against you, nothing between you and me. I just, all I feel is just an obligation to love you. Debt itself is a thief in many ways, especially financial debt. Financial debt steals friendships and it decreases our capacity to love freely. Financial debt steals freedom, making us slaves to the lender. Financial debt steals peace in our hearts and brings an unnecessary stress in our life. Financial debt also steals the joy of watching God provide by faith. It's no wonder that God said, oh, no man, anything. You just don't want to be in that position. Charles Dickens, listen to this, he wrote through one of his characters in one of his books. Listen closely to these words, they're powerful. He said, let us therefore be thus far indulgent to ourselves as to shake off the deadly yoke of bills and obligations, 
which emancipate the most free and ingenuous spirit and dry up the very fountains of liberality. Yea, they so put a man out of aim that he cannot set his state in order, but lives and dies entangled and puzzled with cares and snares. And after a tedious and laborious life passed in a circle of fretting thoughts, he leaves at last, instead of better patrimony, a world of intricate troubles to his posterity and to his sureties, which cannot be managed by those who understand them not, but to great disadvantage." I hope you caught that, but the point was being out of debt is one of the most freeing feelings in the world. You don't have all those cares and snares and you're not going through life and then going through the end just weighed down the whole, your whole life. And this is why the Bible warns against it and God doesn't want people to feel under that weight. He wants people to be free. To, the only obligation they feel in their heart is just to love people. The Bible warns against debt in many ways and it's clear in many places that debt is just simply unwise. Many Christians see Romans 13.8 here as really just a command from God to just never go into debt. Hudson Taylor was one of those. He said, I, this is a clear command from God, do not go into debt. Charles Spurgeon, the same thing. This is a clear command from God. Matthew Henry, back in the 1600s, called debt a sin. Listen, on this verse, here's what he wrote and I have it here for you. He said, Christians must avoid useless expense and be careful not to contract any debts they have not the power to discharge. Let me say that over again because that's the important key right there. Be careful not to contract any debts they have not the power to discharge. They are also to stand aloof from all venturesome speculations and rash engagements and whatever may expose them to the danger of not rendering to all their due. Do not spend that on yourselves, which you owe to others. But many who are very sensible of the trouble think little of the sin of being in debt. Wise words. You know, more recently, Dave Ramsey, of course, the, the famous financial guru guy, and he's a believer, he, and he searched the scriptures after his own failures in his life, made this no debt idea a much more popular these days. He, as he says, debt is dumb. <laughs> And of course, as you know, if you're in this church for any amount of time, you know that my dad has done a lot of teaching on debt over the course of the years, and, um, and a couple of his, of his books give the detail of that. He, that was actually born out of his own failures early on, and the weight of debt that was on him that he felt, and then a search through scripture about finances. And he was talking about it before Dave Ramsey made it cool. <laughs> and by the way, that is the reason that Elena and I really had made the choice for us that we would not go into debt. And over the years, we, I don't know how many times we've talked to each other from the very early stages of our marriage that we just made that decision, we will not go into debt. And um, we figured if we could afford the couch or if we could afford the car, then we would buy it. But if we couldn't, then that was kind of God helping us make a decision. That it just wasn't the right time yet. And this has always been our filter for that decision-making, and I don't know how many times we just said, you know what, I think that decision has, has kept us from so much weight and so much grief. And I'm no financial expert, and uh, I'm sure we could have done things a lot better in certain areas. I know we could have. But we certainly have found that even in, here's what we have found, an average tithing single-income household with no debt bondage and careful budgeting can provide a happy life for a family of eight. 
<laughs> That's what we found. And, and by the way, a lot of those eight people are very starving, hungry boys. They require a lot of food. But I did want to mention one more thing on this topic. <clears throat> My dad, as I mentioned, has gone through a lot of this, so I'm not going to go way into detail, but he answers probably the biggest question that everybody has is, is there a way to buy a house without debt? And, and the answer is yes, as long as there's a collateral to cover in case you default. Then it is no longer a debt, it is an obligation, but not a debt. He kind of goes into detail in this little booklet, Discerning Debt, and I will, you're welcome to have one of these. We have all kinds of copies if you haven't gotten one, and I can give that to you. But uh, very useful, very helpful. You can pay what you owe with the collateral and, if, and thereby uh, obeying this verse, Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything. Just don't be un, in bondage like that. It's just the best way and the most freeing way to live. And then the only thing that you owe is just love. Love for one another. And that's the main point here. Just make it your mission to just not owe anybody anything. Then you have that freedom. Because when you love people, and here's what Paul's going to go on to say, because when you love people freely, there's something bigger that you're doing. You're fulfilling the whole law of God. Look what he says, verses 9 and 10 here. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then verse 10, 10 love worketh no ill to his neighbor or evil. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, Jesus had made it very clear. All the law hinges on two laws. That is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law hinges on those two laws. When you make it your mission to love every person in the world, then you have simultaneously made it your mission to obey every command of God. Ultimately, every law of God comes down to simply loving God and loving people. As someone has said, love for God and love for man is the concrete mix that provides the foundation for the entire law. Commandments, if you think about them, a commandment is a protection for people. That's what love is. It protects people and it doesn't harm people. Love does not commit adultery against a spouse. Love does not cause people to sin, listen to this, by having sex with someone outside of marriage. If I've had sex outside of marriage, premarital sex or sex during a marriage with somebody else, then what I have done is I've just caused that other person to sin. Love doesn't do that. Love does not kill people. <laughs> Love, as he's saying here, these are the Ten Commandments, as he, some of the Ten Commandments as he gives here. Love does not kill people. Love does not steal people's possessions. Love does not lie. Love does not covet. Love simply does not work ill or work evil toward a neighbor. That's what love is. By the way, these verses assume, if you think about it, that we are supposed to be obeying the Old Testament moral law. If you ever hear somebody say, we're no longer under the law, you need to understand that statement correctly. Paul makes it clear here that we are still under the law, the moral law. Love, by doing love, you're actually now fulfilling the law that God told us to fulfill. That's what he's saying. If you'll just love people, and really the whole foundation is love, then you're fulfilling what God has told us to fulfill. But the main point here is you can't sin 
and love at the same time. Because love is the fulfilling of the law. John Blattner um, says that one of his favorite stories is a tradition about John the Apostle. John the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast. And when he was later on in his life, John, an old man, and he was going around preaching and, and going into churches and teaching, it seems that John was on one of his missionary journeys and he was revisiting a small, of group, uh, small group of Christians. And they were so excited that John, John, John's gonna be at the church today. We're so excited to have John. And so one of Jesus' closest friends, he finally gets up when it's church time. He stands up behind the pulpit. He goes up there slowly, an old man now. Everybody's waiting with bated breath to hear what he's gonna say. And he stands up and he says, little children, love one another. Love one another. Then he walked over and just sat down. And the Christians were confused and a little bit upset, actually. They waited so long, such anticipation for that. Just love one another, kid stuff. We hear that in the kids department, you know. And then finally, somebody spoke up and said, Brother John, um, might you be able to just give us a bit, something a little more, I don't know, deeper? <laughs> and he said, my children, the command of the Lord is to love one another. It is all I have to offer. It doesn't get any deeper than that. It doesn't get any deeper than that. And that's the truth this morning. It doesn't get any deeper than that. You think about it, obeying the entire law of God, that's what love is. It doesn't get any deeper than that. It doesn't get any deeper than just obeying God. Love one another, love one another. Deal Moody said, a man may be a good doctor without loving his patients. A good lawyer without loving his clients. A good geologist without loving science. But he cannot be a good Christian without love. And one clarification here, the command to love one another goes beyond merely loving fellow believers. When Paul said this here, the Greek term another in verse 8, when he said love one another, is heteros, that is, the meaning of that is one of a different kind. One of a different kind. Now, what's interesting is the first one another in the verse is about people like you. It's a different Greek word. It means the people like you. But the second is another, is people different from you. In other words, when we love, differences should make no difference. Love is a debt that we give to people and we can, it can never be zeroed out. We owe it to everybody every single day. We owe it to everybody that we come in contact with. Love people. Love people. Have a genuine feeling that I need to just love this person. However, the right way to love is. Sometimes speaking the truth is the, is the way to love, but I need to love one another. As, as we settle in with that, <laughs> Lord, help me to love people. Love people. Then Paul, it's like all of a sudden now, just breaks forth in these next few verses. It's, to me, it feels like a power preaching moment. You know, when a preacher's up there, he's just preaching away, and then all of a sudden, he raises his voice and goes bonkers. I, I, in fact, I was thinking about this passage, and I thought, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Paul, could you recreate how you said this when you ever, if you ever said it out loud, and you preached it? Can you just preach it to me right now? I want to hear it. With urgency in his tone, here's what the great apostle says in these few verses, and then we can go back and look at them one at a time. But listen to this, verses 11 through 14. 
And that, he says, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now in verse 11, Paul is basically saying, folks, look what time it is. Look what time it is. He uses the word for time that means a critical period, a strategic or special period of time. In other words, everybody look at this very critical moment that we are in. Look at its shortness. He says, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. What he's saying is Jesus is closer to coming and getting us out of here today than he was yesterday. Now that's a very obvious statement. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The fact is that Jesus is closer to coming back right in this moment than he was when I first started this message. Every moment goes by, he gets closer to his appearing. And you say, duh, (laughs) we know that. It's an obvious statement. Why does Paul need to mention it? Well, the reason Paul needs to mention it is because we're, we're dumb, honestly. Because even though Christians know that and we say, duh, we fail to live like it. Even back then, Paul had to mention it's the same thing. The Christians then had a tendency to be complacent and unbothered by the fact that Jesus is about to come. That Christ could come back at any moment. Maybe, you know, we get to thinking, well, it's been so long since Jesus promised. But remember, God is outside of time. It hasn't been long for him. Therefore, it still could really be any moment. It really could be any moment. Or maybe we just don't believe that he's coming soon. If we just don't believe Jesus is coming soon, then we're just lacking in faith. And we need to get a fire of faith uh, started underneath us. Whatever our problem is, Paul says, listen... It is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we believed. We ought to be like that little boy whose family clock, he was in there and he heard the family clock and it was malfunctioning and instead of just ringing its normal uh, times, it rang 15 times that thing went off. So he rushed into his uh, mom and he big old wide eyes and said, Mom, it's later than it's ever been. (laughs) That's exactly the point that Paul's making. It's later than it's ever been before. We're not just in the last days, we're in the last of the last days. And God wants alert Christians, Christians who are awake and not wasting their time, the time that they have left. Look what it says in verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. It's right here. So what do we do? Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We are living in the time right before the dawn. See, what he's saying is the night is far spent. The night is over. The day is about to happen. We are living in that time between the night and the day. The sun is about to come over the horizon. It's seconds, it's minutes before Jesus comes back. 
He is almost here. And so Paul says, cast off your night clothes and put on your day clothes. That's what he's saying here. Put on the armor of light. It's kind of like a soldier. It's time to get dressed. It's time to get your armor on. This means to live in the light and not in the darkness. Stop living like it's darkness. Paul explains that in verse 13. He says, here's how he explains it. Let us walk honestly then, basically, as in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. Look at, that, look at how Paul includes himself in this. I, thought that, I think that's encouraging. Let us walk honestly. Let us walk honestly. We all have to do this. It's all of our jobs as believers. The word honestly means properly, honorably, decently, nobly. In other words, walk like it's daytime. Don't do the things that people do in the dark. These are the ugly, these are ugly things that people tend to do when it's dark outside. And they're just as prevalent in our world as they were in Rome. He puts them in pairs here. Look what he says. He says, in rioting and drunkenness. Now those words refer to the wild nighttime festivals of Bacchus, the Roman god of wine. What they would do is they would have a drunken parades through the street at night, and then they would spend the entire night in sexual immorality. That was, that was a Roman tradition. Don't spend your life in rioting and drunkenness. Don't spend your life in chambering and wantonness. Those old English words, chambering, literally means, in the, the Greek word, literally means beds, a bed. It was a euphemism for sexual excess, fornication, premarital sex. Wantonness is an old word that means, and in the Greek it means loose living. It means licentiousness, debauchery, homosexuality, lust, Anything, lust that consumes the thoughts of a person. Don't spend your life in chambering and wantonness. And then he says, and, that, and by the way, when you think about that word wantonness, <laughs> wish we used that word. We're, we're, we're living in a place of woke wantonness right now. And then strife and envying. That means infighting and arguing and contention between people. Basically, it's the person who is in constant competition with other people. They have to have everything that's better than the next guy. And they hate it when somebody else has something better than them. And, and they fight and they hurt people to get what they want. It reminds me of the saying that we have, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. The Christian should be completely different than those things. Those are the works of darkness. Those are the nighttime works. He says, live in the day. Put on the armor of light. You're in the light. Live, live as you're living in the daytime with good things, completely opposite from those. And here is a powerful verse, verse 14. One of, in my opinion, one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Look at this in very important word, and I love uh, Charles Swindoll pointed this out so wisely. The word but here is a, is a key word. The conjunction but, he says, the Greek language offers a choice of two contrasting conjunctions that can be translated but. 
One is a very routine and common but. <laughs> but the other is Allah in Greek, which can draw a stark and emphatic contrast when it appears in conjunction with a verb of command. So, and that's the, cho- the choice that Paul made here, that God really made through Paul. He said, but, in stark contrast to that last verse, in stark contrast to all those things, completely separate, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Christian is to be totally different from those things. It is one or the other. It's not somewhere in the middle is the point. It is darkness or light. Everybody needs to choose this or that, not both. You don't do, the Christian does not do both. Sitting on the fence only gives you splinters. That's not what we do. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase right there. It means to make your everyday life all about Jesus. He is already in you. If you're a born-again Christian, Jesus is already in you. But we need to put him on us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, you have to do it. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's a spiritual work that we do to put him on each day. Put him on you when you're at home. Put him on you when you're at work. Put him on you when you're by yourself. It means you've done the spiritual work in the morning to invite him into your day. It means you've read the word of God and committed yourself to following Jesus. It means you're faithful to coming to church and walking the way he wants you to walk. It means you plan on making sure that your actions and attitudes reflect Jesus. It means you work on speaking with the words of Jesus, like Christ, to your spouse and to your children. It means you want to make life choices that would increase your witness and make people see Jesus in you and not to decrease your witness. You're just, gonna, you're just having Jesus all over you in everything that you do. You're taking him with you in, every, in every, everything that you do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your Lord. And the other side of the coin then is to make no provision for the flesh. This is intentionally starving our sinful fleshly desires. The flesh refers to that part of us that wants nothing to do with God. We are born again Christians and our spirit wants so much to honor and worship the Lord and serve the Lord, but there is that other part of us, the flesh, that is always battling against the spirit and is always trying to pull us away. It is a hungry beast. It wants to eat and eat and eat, but it is never fully satisfied. It is never content with just a little sin. It always wants more. The lie of the flesh is that if you just give me a little bit more, then I'll stop tempting you. Just give me what I want, just a little bit, and I will not bother you anymore. That is the lie from the pit of hell. The flesh is never, ever satisfied. It only is a beast that just continually wants more. That's why the counsel in this verse is the greatest weapon that we have to fight against the flesh. This is it. Don't feed it. Make no provision for the flesh. That's why this is the key. Starve it. You have to starve the flesh. It's the only thing that works. Don't pack a lunch for the flesh. Don't provide even a little snack for the flesh. We starve it. You keep yourself far away from the thing that your flesh is lusting after. 
If you know you're tempted in some area, avoid that like the plague. If it's a place, then don't drive by it. If it's a person, avoid them. If it's a substance, don't get near it. If it's the internet, get accountability software and leave it open for people to check. If it's books, read something else. If it's movies, cancel Netflix. Starve it, starve it, starve it, starve it. It's the only way to keep the flesh from overpowering the spirit. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we make no provision for the flesh. Time is short, Paul is saying. Time is so short. Living a life that just feeds the flesh is a waste and a shipwreck. Now, I want to say something about this verse. I love this verse. And if you ever come asking me how, to, how God says we can defeat temptation and sin, then this is the verse I'm going to give you. So I'm saving you some time. Um, and people have asked, and we've talked many times, and I've, this is the verse I bring up. Because I believe, and how I say it is, I call it God's two-pronged approach to winning the battle against our lusts. Number one, it's the spiritual work of putting on Jesus every day. You have to do that work. You have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day. If you're not doing the spiritual part of this and putting him on and reading the word and getting, getting everything stoked up inside of you about Jesus, then this thing's gonna all fall apart. It's the spiritual work and then it's the practical work of making no provision for the flesh. And there is so much victory in that little sentence right there. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is a victorious statement. There's so much rescue from heartache and pain in that sentence. Never has there been a time where more people in America, especially young men today, are drowning in lusts of the flesh. It's always been a bad world. It's always been a bad world. It's always been a bad world. Look what Paul said. Look what was going on in Rome. Wicked, wicked, wicked. But I will say in America, the stats on porn, for example, are off the charts right now. Off the charts. They've never been like this. Even the world, the sinful world, is so aware of the damage that porn is doing to our young men and young women. It's a huge rise in young women getting into this as well. It's it's messing with people's minds. It's creating a whole weird way of thinking. The damage that it's doing to people is horrific. And what's happening in private is coming out in the actions that we see all around us every day. I mean, literally, the actions that we see everywhere is, is, is all birthed in, the, in things that are happening in private. It's a crazy world, and I know it. The streams of temptation, you know it. The streams of temptation and sin are coming from at, at people from every angle, unlike they ever have been in America with our screens and everything else that we have at, at our fingertips, <laughs> stream, to me it's like streams of a river just coming into a lake. I mean, just coming from every single angle. Rivers, 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 just flooding in of temptation coming into people's minds. Everywhere you look, vi- maybe that's why they call it streaming. <laughs> Visually, it comes from everywhere all hours of the day, audibly through music and other things. Culturally, we're bombarded with lies that we s- read and see. Relationally, it's through people that we hang out with. It's, uh, that's another stream. It's like a person has to build dam after dam after dam after dam after dam. All day long, you're building dams and trying to stop the flow just to help you be able to walk through this life in the Spirit. 
There's a lot of temptation out there, but I believe, I believe, I believe 100% that this verse, God's two-pronged approach still can give a person victory. Still, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, and I will tell you, God will give you victory in your life. There has to be an all-out Jesus-focused life, and there has to be a practical effort to making no provision for the flesh. And then that realization, as Paul says here, that time is short, and people are too valuable, and time is too valuable to throw it away. The people around you need you. The people around you need you. Don't throw away your life. How many years do you have left? How many years do you have left? Nine, like me? <laughs> I don't know how many years I have. By <laughs> she keeps saying, stop. How many years do you have left? Nine, 19, 29, or maybe you have nine months left. Maybe you have nine days left. Maybe you have nine minutes left. I don't know. These are powerful verses to live by. Don't owe people anything. Just love people. Just live a life that's free to love people. That's what I want to live my life doing. And then I want to live my life in such a way that I so love Jesus and so make it about him that every last minute counts for him. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.